The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. If y'all want to go ahead and grab a seat. So glad y'all are all here. It always makes me very thankful when I am um, having to say, hey, 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 because it means y'all want to hang out, and I love that. And, uh, you know, one of the great things about even where our church is located in the city is um, that when you leave these doors, you can actually go grab lunch with whoever you just met uh, or whoever you're seeing. It's, it's a great uh, time to do that. You can run really quickly in the cold, uh, and it's not too bad. Uh, but my name is Stacy Croft, if I haven't met you. Uh, I'm the pastor here at Christ Pres Music Row and uh, would love to get to know you if I haven't met you already. Um, love to get coffee with you. Uh, love to hear your story and help you um, get plugged in further in the life of our church. I've gotten to meet uh, several new people who've just either moved to town or moved to this area of the city and uh, are, are, are coming to church here. And uh, man, it's been great to have a lot of new folks and a lot of new faces and um, that's yeah, really sweet. You know, uh, one of the things uh, that I remember um, as I grew up, I'm from Texas originally, and um, my dad and mom are from there as well. And, uh, you know, there was a time where I asked my dad, I said, hey, I'd love to see kind of where you grew up. And years ago, we took a trip out to East Texas, and he grew up in um, the 40s in, uh, that is 1940, by the way, uh, in the uh, East Texas oil fields. That's where he grew up in that kind of that scene where the oil was being drilled out and communities were literally being built around where the oil was being uh, drawn out of the ground in East Texas, uh, around Tyler, Van, some of those areas, if you're familiar somewhat. That's somewhat east, southeast of Dallas. And I remember him driving me to several different places, uh, you know, a place called Troop, Texas, uh, which, yeah, it's not even spelled like you would think it's spelled. It's T-R-O-U-P-E. You know, the Texans, we got, we got to spell things different. So uh, Troop, Texas, Troop, as he called it. You get a troop, there's, you know, a few little things there. And I remember him driving up to, we went kind of on this dirt road back into this uh, path through some trees. And we just parked in the middle of a dirt road not, not a whole lot out there, just kind of like what you right outside the city, you know, here, just a lot of woods and maybe a dirt road. And we, we got out of the car and we walked up this um, kind of what looked like an old road. And from left to right, there were just little clearings all along the way. And you, we just kept walking down this path. And then all of a sudden he said, okay, let's go here. And we took a left and we walked up to one of the clearings and he said, this is where my house was. And he began to show me, and you could see really deep into the ground, it kind of, you know, some of the cinder block and some of the, the, the rebar that was formed into the walls. And he pointed out to me, he said, this is not normal rebar. This is actually called sucker rods that they used to use for sucking the oil out of the ground. They used the sucker rods instead of rebar to build. And he began to teach me, and he, we walked into this little plot, and he showed me where his room was. 
used to be, and all these things. And then we went out and we went to this watering hole. Literally, this is like, sounds like a country song, right? We went to a watering hole uh, where there was this giant uh, like water tower called the onion. He said, this is the onion and this is the hole, blue hole. And we used to swim here. And they just, it was deep. They didn't even know how deep it was. It was one of these natural water holes. You could just, like a pond that just went down forever. And just hearing him talk about these things, we went by his high school and all these things and seeing all these places and not just hearing, it was so different for me to not just hear of him tell stories about it, but to actually go and smell it and touch it and see it. Uh, we're reading a passage that I really chose to connect uh, from what we read in Colossians to what we're looking at in Advent. And when I read it to you, you're gonna be like, I'm so glad he did not ask me to read this passage. It's Matthew chapter one, verses one through 17. And all it is is a genealogy. It's just a list of names. And it's one of those things where you're like, so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, was the father of so-and-so. And I'm gonna read that to us in a second. But the reason I wanna read this is because Matthew doesn't write this genealogy in here just as a list of names. He writes it because he wants us to experience the smell, the touch, the, the, the understanding that Jesus' life and why a genealogy is important is for us to know that it comes back. There's a history to it. It's a deep past. There's actually two genealogies in the gospel. There's one in Matthew's gospel and there's one in Luke's, and they're written for different audiences. They have some similar names, but they're written to capture the audience and let us know a specific reason why these people are listed in the genealogy. And for Matthew, he wants us to understand fulfillment. There are gonna be a few names, and they're big names, that even if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, you're like, I know that name. But the majority of them, you're gonna be like, I don't know any of these. And quite frankly, most, most of us don't. Most theologians are look at the names and we don't know much about them. But what it does tell us is it reminds us, and Matthew begins his whole gospel this way, to remind us that Advent is not just another story. It's not just something you hear. It's meant to be experienced. It's meant to bring all of history culminating into this moment, which what Advent means is a breaking in. It means to break in. It means to birth force, it come into existence. And so when we read this, I want you to hear that when I read this, how Jesus is, and we're gonna look at this in a couple ways, how Jesus is connected to us and how are we connected to him? Matthew chapter one, verses one through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, 
and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheatiel, and Sheatiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abud, and Abud, the father of Elakim, and Elakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mahan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, and the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations of Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon were 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. I want us to look at this in two ways, two things that I think what Matthew wants us to understand. One is the reliability of this, the reliability of our relationship to God through this passage, and then the relatability, a word I'm making up, of course, relatability, right? So reliability, how has Jesus connected us, and relatability, how do we connect to Jesus? Why a genealogy beginning? I mean, at first, it's kind of like, that seems a bit boring. You'd want him to launch into the story, but what Matthew's trying to do is not just create some suspense, he's actually trying to enter in the doors, bring you in by saying, hey, here is who I'm about to tell you about. That this is a reliable source. That Jesus is who he says he is. He is legitimate. Anytime a genealogy was thrown, is thrown in the Bible, now whether you read it in the Old Testament or you read one of the ones in the New Testament, it is to show you heritage, inheritance, reliability, legitimacy. It was like, hey, I want you to know that I'm not just making this up. To say someone was someone, you always gave a list of this is why. When Queen Elizabeth died uh, you know, fairly recently, it's been interesting even as I've kind of gone back and seen a little bit of the history of, okay, a succession. I don't know if you've ever like looked at why, and I know we hear about it and we're kind of interested in who's, the, who's next in line to be king or queen. But there's a lot that goes into it. In fact, over a 1,000 years ago, they had to create a certain ascension council to help work through this. And then even in the um, late 1600s, the 17th century, they had to bring parliament in to be a part of the succession narratives because there were certain people that were like, ah, I don't want the throne, and they'd just walk away. And if you've watched The Crown, some of you have seen some of those fun things. You know, you watch some of the drama of that. But, but, but it's a lot more for somebody to say, and you may have seen it in The Crown, you know, when certain members of the royal family have walked away, it's a big deal, more than just what we read in People magazine. And it actually changes a lot of the narrative of not just the royal family, but the UK itself. So there's a lot, a part of that, the legitimacy of making sure the succession is right and making it for the, the entire state of the country. 
That's what's happening here. This is what Matthew's getting at. The genealogy in here is inspired right away as a genealogical register. In fact, the language that Matthew uses, the very first two words that he uses in this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, parallels to the Hebrew in Genesis to say, this is the beginning. Matthew knows his stuff, and he wants us to pay attention to it. And his great theme, and this sets the tone for the entire book of Matthew, the entire gospel, is fulfillment. Is the word fulfillment. That God does what he says he will do. That this is fulfilled. The word Jesus Christ, and notice even the title in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That one verse alone contains so much that would have been given to them. And when it says Jesus Christ, I know we're used to that, but Jesus was his name. Christ was not his last name. It was his title. Now, I know some of you are like, well, yeah, I know that. But it's incredibly important. There were other people named Jesus or Yeshua in the in the Bible, even, we see. We even read a passage last week that talked about Jesus, who was also known as Justice. But Christ was his title, meaning he was anointed. That's what it meant, the Messiah. This was key, because this was the pinnacle of all who were looking towards. All of this line that we just read about was looking for an anointed one. They were looking for a fulfillment of God's promise. They were looking for something to come. This is why it even begins with the son of David, I mean, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The son of David, why the son of David and Abraham? Because this is what he wants them to know. He's writing particularly to a Jewish audience, and he wants them to understand that the anointed one is carrying forward all the promises, not only going back to David, but going back to Abraham. Not just hundreds, but thousands of years back to the original promise given to Abraham. And what was that? The son of Abraham. Before David, even the father of Israel, this, this character, maybe you remember the name Abraham. He was the father all the way back in Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, chapter 12, the 12th chapter in the Bible, when it, Abraham comes onto the scene, he's not particularly even a Jewish person. The Lord brings him in and makes him part of his people and gives him a promise through what's called a covenant, a relationship, almost like what we see in a marriage ceremony is a covenant being made with Abraham and say, I'm going to give you descendants that if you look at the sky like the stars, you won't even be able to count how many. And Abraham's like, that's amazing, but I'm 100 years old. How am I going to have kids? I can't have children. He's kind of like, that's incredible. I will believe you. <laughs> How is this going to happen? And Abraham, through God's amazing, miraculous work, is able to have children. And then this promise that he gives to them, it says, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. He's looking forward to this, so, so much so that in John chapter 8, the religious leaders are arguing with Jesus about who he is, and he brings up Abraham to them. And he says to them, they, they said to him, are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? They start questioning Jesus about, A, his heritage and who he is. 
But B, they're saying, you're crazy, you have a demon. And Jesus answers them by saying, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet you do, I do not seek my own glory. There's one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, anyone who keeps my word, he will never see death. And they say back to him, the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets who died? Who, may, who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus says this back. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God, but you have not known him. I know him, and if I were to say that, I do not know him. I would be a liar like you, but I do know him. I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Abraham rejoiced to see his, how in the world? Because Abraham looked forward. He knew that the promise was not even, even in his lifetime that would go beyond him. And you see some of that even in this genealogy. But also the son of David, Maybe another name that you know or recognize, the king. That in 2 Samuel, in this, these two historical books of the kings called First and 2 Samuel, or they're actually one, it was called Samuel. It was about David's life. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, it talks about David becoming king. And that David was the mighty one. He would bring peace to Israel. And David was like, Lord, I'm bringing peace. I've subdued our enemies. Everything is great. I'm ready to build your temple. I'm gonna, you, for, for the longest time, God's tabernacle, which was this tent, was where God dwelt. And David had subdued everything, brought the kingdom into its maximum glory of Israel and said, God, now it's time for me to build you the most elaborate, beautiful temple you deserve. And you would think that God was like, do it, but he doesn't. And here's what's incredible. Instead, he reverses it. He says, no, 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 David, you're not gonna build me a house. Because if, if that were the way it works, because most of the time, how promises that were kept in the Old Testament, you tried to do something for the God that you cared about, hoping that they would give back to you. And in a great twist of God showing how he is different from any other God. He says, David, you're not gonna build me a house. I'm gonna build your house. And on the throne that you occupy, I'm going to put my chosen one, my anointed one, my Messiah, who will last on that throne forever. Instead of David trying to give God what he deserved, God in his mercy and grace gave David what he didn't. And soon that would crumble, and that's where it even goes from there. The son of David, son of Abraham, and even further on, the fulfillment of what was being brought was way beyond them. It wasn't just a fulfillment internally of them hoping for something. I read an article recently that really talked about fulfillment and how we should want far less things, you know, Atlantic article. It was good. It was a really good article talking about fulfillment and was saying how, we, how to want less and have more fulfillment in your life. Now, that's good. And it's talking about 
the internal things. And we're about to get into a season with Advent and Christmas and all the things that people want from us and we want from them and the gifts that we give and all those things. But this fulfillment is going far past that. In fact, I would reverse what the article is saying is that fulfillment, what this is speaking of, is how we want far more. And not of things, but far more of what Abraham longed to see and what David longed to see on the throne is the one who fulfills it all in him. The climax of history himself, Jesus. I I want to throw out to us that maybe this genealogy begins this way in Matthew. Before we even get into the the wonderful stories we're going to unpack all through the Advent season about how how glorious it is of, of of Gabriel coming to Mary and, and Joseph and all the stories that we, we revisit every year because we love those. Before we get to that, ask yourself the question, what do you want more of? What fulfillment do you really wish for? What would really meet that here? Because the fulfillment that Jesus brings doesn't just touch on something internal and, and, and stick to our insides, it transforms everything. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was an incredible uh, theologian, British theologian, he wrote a sermon on the fulfillment that was coming in Advent. And the thing he said about this, he said, what God did when he sent his son into the world is an absolute guarantee that every single thing he has promised will come to pass. The Advent isn't just a nice warm fuzzy for us, but even a genealogy is pointing that God through history and space and time fulfills every single thing he says. And that is far more and meets the depths of not just our felt needs, but our actual needs all around and inside. What do we really want? What do we want more of? What do we really want to happen? That's fulfillment. That's the thing that touches places in us that we kind of look at and we go, man, I just feel a lack. And that's why it moves not just from his reliability, but if you look at this genealogy, it's not just a list of how God fulfills, but A closer and deeper look at this, if you were reading this from the standpoint of even the Jewish people, they would say, wait, this genealogy? Because it's not just a line that says it's going to Jesus, how, how we're connected to him, I mean, how he's connected to us, but how we're connected to him, the relatability. The names brought in here are not just like superheroes, they're actually names that kind of bring a lot more to it. I actually brought this up to read because I think I love how Sally Lloyd-Jones writes at the beginning of the entire Jesus Storybook Bible that how the genealogies work. Listen to what she says. Some people think the Bible is a book of rules, telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have heroes in it, 
as you'll soon find out. Most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away, and at times they're downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful fairy tale that has come true in real life. See, this genealogy isn't just something that helps us know how we got to Jesus. It's how he got to us. Notice, I want to just walk through a couple of these names just to remind you of the story. Abraham to Judah, even verses 2 and 3. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah, some of the greatest names in the, they're considered the patriarchs of the Old Testament. Every single one of them tried to bring the promise that we're talking about, the fulfillment on their own means. Even Abraham, who had God come to him and saw the stars in the sky, thought, I gotta do this on my own. He tried to work at it, and you can read it from Genesis on. That even the people that knew that God was faithful said, it's all about my faithfulness. I've gotta work. And even if God is doing most of it, I need to give a little bit of a sliver to make sure this promise happens. (laughs) That's not how it happens. David, whose line of the throne, you see his name mentioned twice here because it hinges actually on David. That's what Matthew wants us to see. And notice from six to the next section, it's broken in that way for a reason. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And then it goes, and David, the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. It brings in even for the, the, the viewer and we'll hit on some of this in a minute, one of David's choices with the wife of Uriah that was not his wife to let us know that David himself, the pinnacle of the kingdom, is fallen. He is not the anointed one. He's pointing to the one that he even needs. Verses seven through 11, all of these names, Solomon, Rehoboam, all the ones that you enjoyed me like wrestling through. I know you really like that. You're like, how's he gonna say this one? Say it with confidence. You don't even know if I know, really. Do you? All those names are listed of kings, some of which we know a lot about, some of which we know a little. And we do know for sure that it does list a lot of these kings denied even following the Lord himself in certain ways. They were considered wicked kings. This list of people that we don't even know. The, the, the other part of this that's embedded into this itself is that there are listed five women in this genealogy, which is very unheard of in that time. Women were usually not listed. And here's the thing that even goes further than that. He not only lists five of them, four of those women are not Jewish. They're considered Gentiles. And to look at Jesus as someone who's of a straight line, right to David, the the great Jewish king, but through four Gentile women. Matthew's wanting us to know the, the line of Jesus is relatable because it brings in everybody. 
This isn't the perfect story all about us. If it was meant to be some sort of like great narrative that we wanted everybody to just fall into, he, he would have written any na- in every name that would just been perfect in, in their narrative. Can't even do that. Not even with the highest of names, Abraham and David. It is to bring us all in. It's to show us that there's faithfulness of God. It's to show us exactly what Toby Keith sang when he said, I love this bar. Remember that song? He said, I love this. It was an old country song. It's exactly what it sounded like, right? We got winners and we got losers, chain smokers and boozers. We've got yuppies. We've got bikers. We've got thirsty hitchhikers. Song goes on and on and on for him to say, I love this bar. These are the kind of people that are actually in this genealogy. And I don't mean that to just bring in a funny illustration. This is actually their past. And it's connected to Jesus. Look, guess what? What does God do here? He connects himself to those that are not perfect. Because the Messiah who is perfect, the one they were looking for who would come in, that even the disciples following him around for, for years would miss his purpose wasn't just to bring in a perfect kingdom in, in his force, but a perfected kingdom through his blood, through his death, through his humility, to reach the places that even his disciples and even us who are not in this line by birth, but by faith, would be brought in. And even this place in verse 12, where it says in verse 11 and 12, the deportation of Babylon, it's trying to get us to understand that even at the height of everything with David's kingdom, the lowest point was Babylon. When Israel was captured by the superpower Babylon, everyone was exiled. The temple was destroyed. Everything is waylaid. Where is the hope? This genealogy doesn't just bring the heights of the genealogy with maybe some difficult stories. It brings the difficulty and it brings the, even the lowest points of Israel's history to say it's not up to us. That even those things, God brings hope. Some of y'all know um, story, we've been out of our home for some time. Our home flooded uh, almost two years ago, we've been out. And um, we had a, a tree that um, my son, my older son and I planted in the front yard. It was a Japanese maple. It's a beautiful little tree. They don't get very big. And it, you know, it was one of those things that we wanted to save uh, amongst all the other things. You know, I got to rip it when you're rebuilding and trying to fix your house from this stuff, you know, from a flood. You got to rip out a bunch of things. Thankfully, it survived. We move it to the backyard and to a space because we're going to, you know, leave it there. We're like, okay, we want to, this is the thing. If there's one thing we want to save, around our home. This has a lot of like beauty to it and, 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 and um, such sentimentality for our family and hope in a sense, right? Well, I, I don't know if you remember, this is uh, I, what, how many months ago, <clears throat> a number of months ago when we had those incredible windstorms. Um, well, my neighbors uh, send me a picture and they say, oh man, we had a trampoline that was like, I don't know, 100 yards down the way, I mean, it's like, it's just several yards down the way. 
And they send me a picture and, and they go, oh, your trampoline got totally demolished. Well, I look at the picture and the wind had literally picked up the trampoline and dropped it right on that one tree that we planted in the only place that we thought, oh man, it'll be fine back here. The one thing we had left <laughs> from this house, the one thing we were like, this is sentimental and sweet and we're gonna smash. And it gives such the picture. We walked out and I remember we just walked around this tree, just bent over, <laughs> had to throw the trampoline off, Thankfully, we're able to just pull the thing up with the soft roots that it had. But it just showed that is where Israel was reading this very genealogy. They felt like everything was crushed. They felt like their hope was demolished. They felt like the last ditch effort they had was completely waylaid. <laughs> and what does God do? Through the most hopeless of moments. He brings what the prophets call a root, a shoot out of the stump, a reed that would be bruised but not broken. The one who would be the hope that is Jesus himself. It's incredible to think about what this table is, is first how Jesus got to us through the most difficult means. Jesus doesn't go around things. His birth, even in and of itself, that God would take on flesh, that he would set a table like this with his body and blood to let us know that it is costly. How he got to us in every way, through every name you see on this list and others that are not even listed. How are you and I connected to him? by grace through faith. You realize that even Abraham himself was glad to see Jesus, not because Abraham had shared the same blood as Jesus, but because he looked forward by faith to Jesus. Just as we look backwards by faith to Jesus and trust in him in relationship, he looked forward that we are in the same family with Abraham, the same family with David, the same family of those in here that share the same issues, that bring them all to the same table. And we walk away knowing that how we get to him is by that grace through faith. We can't come in any other way. And what will transform you and I? What will make us different? What will fulfill us? What will change us is not hoping to get close to some, some sweet sentimentality. It's by the fact that no matter what looked hopeless, God brought hope. Nothing can separate us. This is why Paul says it. Nothing in all of creation and all of life can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You know why? Because this line brings us in. We are a part of this same genealogy. We're a part of the smells, the experience, the taste, the reality that we are sons and daughters of the king, the anointed one. This is Advent. When you come to this table, pray for more. That's what the sacraments are to do, not to 
make you have an experience more, but to see more of Jesus. They're actually for you to, to have a magnifying glass over who your Savior is, who the King is, who the one who's actually fulfilled these things, who fulfills every moment in your life even now. Nothing is out of sorts for him. No matter what it is, it is all brought up into him. And I would encourage you, if you're here this morning and this table is, is sweet, it's sentimental, thinking about Jesus, the genealogy, maybe hearing these things and you think, man, I, I, I like the sound of it. I don't know if I have a relationship with him like that. And I encourage you not to take of this table. Don't take of it and, and express something you don't really believe. That would be disingenuous. That would say, yeah, I'm friends with so-and-so when I'm, you're really not. I'm in relationship with him, and you're really not. But come to this table knowing that what brings you in is by faith in Christ. You trust him. There's nothing you can earn, nothing you can bring. Faith is not something that you have faith in your faith to feel it anymore. It's looking to the one who's actually fulfilled it. That's Christ. Praise be to God. Let's stand together.